0: Welcome to the Rocky Valley Podcast. This is Pastor Jason Moe. We're glad you stopped in to have a listen, and we hope that this blesses you in some way. If you have your Bibles, open them up to the book of James. Open them up to the book of James. We'll be in chapter 2 of the book of James. Those of you who are not all that good at math, that is right after chapter 1, just before chapter 3. And we'll be in verse 8 through 13 tonight. Verses 8 through 13, loving mercy is impartial. Loving mercy is impartial. We come to this text tonight as we continue our study in the book of James. And we're going to see an expansion on the subject that we we started last week, and that is the subject of partiality in the church. And remember last week we saw that James dealt with the subject of hypocrisy as he related to us a story of potential favoritism in the church. He introduced first the concept that God was no respecter of persons. So, therefore, God has no concern with our money, God has no concern with our social standing. God has no concern with the clothes we wear, God has no concern with the job we have. God has no concern with what a person brings to the table. God is no respecter of persons. God is concerned with a person 's standing in terms of have they accepted Jesus Christ? Are they a follower of Christ? And if they are not, that should be our, our goal should be to share the gospel of Jesus. With them, And we should not be a respecter of persons either. He, he used the story, after he introduced that concept... ...of the two men who walked into the church service... ...one of which was obviously wealthy. He had gold rings on all his fingers. We said that was a, a symbol in that time... ...that a person had a lot of money... ...because everybody wore rings on their fingers... ...but if you were wealthy, you had golden rings upon your fingers. And if you had them on all your fingers... Well, you had a lot of money because you could afford to buy those gold rings and put them on your hands. And then another man walked in as well, who was obviously poor. The man was probably wearing the only suit of clothes that he had, wearing about all he had. And he came in, and James was telling them, if you were to see this happen and you were to go to the rich man and try to give him a position of honor within the church, and you were to go to the poor man and say, hey, you just stand back there, or or, you sit here at my feet, you just get wherever you can get. We're going to pay attention to this other guy. Then you would be showing partiality as a church. And James said, that is not what God would have us to do. And so James starts to write a little further on this point and tells us to, to look at our mindset When it comes to sin and that's really where we're going to be tonight in terms of of where we're at He's really going to hone in on our sin and our mercy and the way we treat people And on the way we view sin within ourselves So please stand in honor and reverence for the holy words Of our holy God from the book of James chapter 2 beginning in Verse 8 If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture You shall love your neighbor as yourself You do well But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. Now if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so do as though who will be judged by the law of liberty." For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. And mercy triumph over judgment. Let's pray. Father God, we ask that you would do this evening what only you can do, and that is take the holy word of Scripture and use it to change our minds, change our hearts, and change our lives, Lord God. God, we ask you to bind any spirit from this place, any negative thought from this place, anything that would distract us from the worship of our holy God, because you, you are worthy of our worship, God. So God, you have your way and your will in this service. And when it's over, we promise, God, that we will give you the praise and the honor and the glory for all that you do. And all of God's people said, and you may be seated. We see that James starts out, and he's been talking about being impartial. And he says, if you really fulfill the royal law of love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. James is quoting here from Leviticus 19, 18. And he says, the law says, love your neighbor as yourself. Do to your neighbor as you would do to yourself. And James says, well, if you really do this, well, you do well. But it's almost a sarcastic tone. You've got to pick up the tone that James is kind of writing with. Well, if you do this, you do well. It's almost like you would say, yeah, right. You, you, we know you're not really doing this. It's obvious that you're not really doing this. But if you were, you're doing well. And so what is this? What is the, the law of love your neighbor as yourself? Well, I think we've got to ask ourselves just a few questions as we look at that. One, how do you love yourself? Well, you feed yourself. You clothe yourself, you meet your own needs, you see that you are taken care of. You consider your own feelings, you consider your own emotions, you consider yourself and how it reacts and the things that you you do and how it's going to affect you and how it's going to affect those closest to you. So you really, you give yourself a lot of attention. And so you ask yourself, "Do, do I treat my neighbor the same way? Do I give my neighbor the same attention that I give myself? Do I give my neighbor the same concern that I give to myself? Uh, Do I make myself uh, as worried about my neighbor's well-being as I do my own well-being? And it brings up another question, right? It came up in the story of the Good Samaritan. He said, well, who is my neighbor? If I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself, well, then tell me who is this person I am to love by myself? Who is it? Who is my neighbor? And Jesus in the story of the Good Samaritan says that the one who showed mercy to the injured traveler was the one who was the neighbor. And so the definition of who our neighbor is will have nothing to do with geography. It will have nothing to do with address. It will have nothing to do with the town of residence. But it will be the one who is in my path. The one who is in my life today who is in need of mercy and compassion. The one who is placed in my life who is in need of mercy and compassion, that is my neighbor. And so now we think this thought of James, he's laying it out here and he says this. Do you show mercy and do you show compassion to all of those that you intersect with? All of those in your life in the same way that you would make sure that your own needs are met. Do, do you take that person who is placed into your life where you go, I don't know why this person is here. Think about the story of the Good Samaritan because that's the reference that we get from this. Think about that story. As that man was walking down the road, he did not intend to intersect with the injured traveler. He had no intention when he left his house that day of coming in contact with someone who had need. But what did he do? When he came in contact with one who had need, he met the need, didn't he? And that is how Jesus says we are to love our neighbor, by being attentive to who's around us. And when we intersect with someone, come in contact with someone, have some some chance encounter with someone, that is our neighbor at that time. And James says, do you love your neighbor as yourself? The one that you weren't planning on running into, the one that you didn't plan on seeing, do you love that person in the same way that you love yourself? And how do we love someone when they're placed into our life? Because I think we need to to look at that. I think sometimes we're we're called to feed someone. Sometimes we're called to clothe someone. Sometimes we're called to, to do both. Sometimes that's how... We are to show mercy to them, but sometimes, sometimes we're called to show loving mercy by telling someone no. Sometimes, sometimes we're called to show loving mercy by stopping something, by, by letting someone know that if I continue to allow you to go down this road, if I continue to, to do this and enable you to do this, I'm only causing you more trouble. I'm only letting you go further and further and further away from what the Word of God says you are to be doing. And so sometimes showing love and mercy is to clothe someone. Sometimes it's to feed someone. Sometimes it's to tell someone, no, we have to break this cycle. Sometimes showing mercy to someone, particularly in the house of God, sometimes showing mercy to someone, a fellow believer, it's to point out that they're living in sin. It's to point out that sin has overtaken them in their life. Not in a an angry way, not in an upset way, not in a a belittling way, but in a loving way. Listen, you're going down this road, and it is is taking you out of fellowship with God. It is taking you out of what you are supposed to be doing here in the house of God. And I have to let you know as your brother in Christ that I'm here for you. How can I help you? How can I show mercy to you? By letting you know that the path that you are on... It's not always the path you need to be on. And so sometimes showing mercy is clothing someone. Sometimes it's feeding someone. Sometimes it's both. Sometimes it's telling someone no. Sometimes it's telling a brother in sin that he's living in sin and he needs to pay attention to his life. Sometimes it's any number of things. And so what does it basically mean? We as believers should be so into the Word of God and so in tune and so prayerful That we're able to discern when someone in need of mercy is placed in our path. And if we're really being honest, every day of our lives there's someone in our path in need of some form of mercy. Every day of our lives, probably many times a day, probably even on Sunday when you come to church with all the other people who put on all the pretty clothes and came to church, you probably still ran into a brother or sister who was in need of mercy. And we're to be looking, how can I show you mercy? How can I show you compassion? How can I do it in the way that Christ did? And so we see this this idea of partiality start to come back up in verse 9. He says, but if you show partiality, you commit sin. And you're convicted by the law as a transgressor. Look at verse 10 with me, too, while we're here. We're going to talk about both these right now. But whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, well, he's guilty of all. And so he says... If you show partiality, and so in other words, if you give someone more attention, if you pick someone and show favoritism to someone, if you give somebody something that you wouldn't give to somebody else based on their social standing, their financial standing, or what they can do for you, if you do that, you're showing partiality, and you are a sinner, convicted under the law as a transgressor. Now, this is serious stuff here. James is writing, if you show partiality, you are guilty of sin. And when he says convicted by the law is a transgressor, well, what is the penalty for sin? According to Romans 6.23, the wages of sin, the earnings of sin is death. And so James says, if you show favoritism, if you show favoritism to someone, you deserve the punishment for favoritism, and that is death. And then verse 10 says, if you keep the whole law and you miss one point, you're guilty of the whole law. So if you do everything else right, you keep all the other commandments that are given and you show favoritism, your showing of favoritism has made you guilty of every single letter of the law. That doesn't seem fair, does it? Maybe not. I don't know. What I do know is that God says the wages of sin is death and that it doesn't take a whole bunch of sin for you to be guilty of sin. It just takes a sin. And I know what we think when we see that. We say, surely, because I've thought it before. I've thought it before. Surely this sin is not as bad as that sin, right? Surely this thing I'm doing, well, it's not as bad as that thing I was doing before. So I'm doing better. I'm not not sinning the way that I was. I'm just sinning the way that I am. And surely this one is not as bad as that one. Surely if I show a little preferential treatment to the guy that, that I feel like can help me later on in my life, surely if I give him a little favoritism, that's not nearly as bad as if I commit adultery, is it? That's not nearly as bad as if I murder, is it? Surely it's not nearly as bad. And we start to base our spiritual Consequences than our spiritual thoughts on earthly consequences. That's what we do. It isn't as bad to steal as it is to murder, is it? It isn't as bad to get angry with someone and lash out in anger as it is if I get angry with them and hit them, is it? I mean, I would think we have an officer of the law in here, and I think according to the law, the punishment for me getting mad at Danny... And saying I don't like him is a far cry different than if I get mad and assault him. Am I right, Brother Eric? If I just holler at him, I'm probably not going to get arrested. If I strike him, Brother Eric's going to throw me on the ground and cuff me. Some of you are going to laugh. I'm going to cry. And I'm going to ask Eric to let me go, please, show mercy. My point is we, we try to take sin... And we try to put this earthly mindset on it, right? In our earthly mindset, there are different punishments available for these things that we do. But if you if you take that view of sin, you start to miss the whole mark that is set before you. And you start to really forget something about God. God is holy. God's holy. And God hates sin. He is a holy God. And Habakkuk one thirteen says he cannot look upon sin with favor. It doesn't say he cannot look upon bad sin with favor. It says he cannot look upon sin with favor. So if God is a holy God, he can't look at your anger. He can't look at your stealing. He can't look at your adultery. He can't look at your murder as any different. He can only look upon it and see filthy, rotten, hell-bound sin. That's all that God sees when He sees sin. He hated sin so much that He had to pour out His wrath opponent, upon His Son Jesus on the cross. He poured out His wrath upon sin because sin had to be punished. And so how many sins does it take for me to be subject to the punishment of God? One. Just one. In fact, in fact, according to Romans five twelve, because of Adam's sin, we're born with enough sin to be under the penalty of God if it weren't for his grace and mercy if not for His grace and mercy. So we want to grade sin the way that we wish to see it, as if my sin really isn't that bad, or if my sin is somehow okay, and God does not share that view with us. Now keep in mind why James is writing this letter to the dispersed believers. It's to question our faith, to make us look at our faith, look at... Look at how we're viewing things. How do we look at sin in our life? And so as we examine our faith and we examine our standing with Christ, as we examine what we're doing, James is kind of calling us here and he's saying, Don't forget, don't forget, you have to have the right attitude about sin. And that attitude is that all sin is worthy of the punishment. And the punishment for sin is death. So we have to have a biblical perspective about our sin. So what do we do when the truth about our sin is brought to light? And it goes back to how did we respond to the Word of God? Because what's the measuring stick? Where do we see how sin is exposed? Sin is exposed by the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit exposes the Word. And so how do we respond to our sin being brought to light? Do we respond in pride and cling to our sin and say it's not that bad? It's my sin. It's his sin that's the problem. Mine's okay. Or do we respond in humility the way that a believer should respond and repent and beg God to take away the sin? God, please forgive me. God, please remove me from this temptation. Give me the strength. Give me the wisdom to see the pitfalls, God. God, please forgive me. No matter how little that sin may seem to us, if God reveals it to us a sin, as a believer, we must repent, which means to ask forgiveness and turn away from that sin, not continue down that path anymore. But James goes on, lest we start to give some thought to our examination and say, Well, I don't really do anything wrong. Or I just have this one little sin. Or I just have this one thing. I don't even know if it's really sin. We're going to get a flashback to the Sermon on the Mount here. We're going to kind of look back to the Sermon on the Mount. You remember when we introduced James, we said he kind of gives us a commentary to the Sermon on the Mount, which is found in Matthew chapters 5 through chapter 7. And so let's look at Matthew 5, 19 real quick. Because we want to make sure we have a a biblical perspective about our sin. He says, whoever breaks how many of these? One of the great old big commandments. Is that what it says? Whoever therefore breaks one of the least. Thank you, Mr. McAfee. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments. Whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments. So the ones that in our mind seem to be the smallest, the least. Whoever breaks one of them is breaking a commandment of God. And in verse 11 we see here. That he starts to enter, he said, He who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. But if you don't commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. And so James is showing us, and I believe he uses these two examples because in the Old Testament, adultery and murder were both punishable by death. And so as James introduces adultery and murder, he's really calling the attention to the believers that these two sins are punishable by death. And so he says, according to the Old Testament law, the penalty for both is death. So if you do one, but you don't do the other, so you manage not to murder anyone, but you commit adultery, well, you're still guilty of the same punishment of death. And if you manage not to commit adultery, but you commit murder, well, you're still punishable by death. And so you've inherited the same punishment for the sin. And so if you transgress one, you're subject to the penalty of death. Now let's look back at the Sermon on the Mount again. I don't want us to get a holy head. Because I know when you say adultery and murder, if you're not careful, you can get kind of a holy, sanctimonious attitude about it. Ms. Loretta, can we look at Matthew 5.22? Look at 5.22. He says, I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause, shall be in danger of the judgment. Now in the verse just prior, he said, you know that it says, thou shalt not murder. But then Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, thou shalt not murder, but I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother is in danger of the judgment. It's not just whoever commits murder physically, but whoever is angry with their brother. Now it says brother without cause, but I believe if you look to the original text, the phrase would be better translated, the brother who is held in contempt. The brother that is bound to you. So it's not just the physical act of murder that Jesus says is the standard. It's not just murder, it's anger. If you have anger with your brother, and in the context, if you have an anger that might boil over into a physical confrontation or murder, you are guilty of murder. And you are under the penalty of death. So now, those of us who sat here a moment ago saying, well, I've never killed anyone, if you look at it the way Jesus looks at it, if you've ever been angry, if you've ever said, I'd like to kill that guy. Wives, if you've ever said, I'm going to kill him when he gets home. Wives, if you've ever lied about saying, I'm going to kill him when he gets home. Suddenly, those of us who a moment ago said, I've never committed murder. If you look at the the way Jesus presents it, I would say we've all been angry with someone, angry enough to want to lash out. It's not just acting on it, it's thinking on it. Look at Matthew 5, 28. You're going to see where I'm going. He says, you know it says, do not commit adultery, but I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So a moment ago I said, do not commit adultery. Some of you went, I've managed to make it on that one. I've never committed adultery. I'm not going to commit adultery. And then Jesus says what? Well, guess what? Even if you've never physically committed adultery yourself, if you thought about it, if you looked at a member of the opposite sex with lust in your heart, then you have already committed adultery. You've already done it. Now this is Jesus preaching. I want to be clear. This isn't Billy Graham. This isn't some theology writer. This is Jesus Christ in the Sermon on the Mount. And he says about adultery, if you lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. Suddenly those of us who have never committed adultery, that number's dwindled suddenly, hasn't it? Some of us who said, I've never murdered But I've been angry. I've never committed adultery, but I have have lusted in my heart, if I'm being honest. And so James points these out to us. And it's not to make us necessarily feel bad, although we should feel bad about our sin. But it's to kind of call our attention to something. We are unable to uphold perfectly the laws of God. We can't do it. We cannot live a life holy enough to be counted blameless before God. We are all sinners. And if we are all sinners, then we all deserve death. And if we are all sinners who deserve death but for the grace of Jesus Christ who died for those sins, then verse 12 says we should begin to look at things a little differently. We should speak... And do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. So if we recognize that we are sinful, we recognize that we are sinners, we recognize that we cannot hit the mark that is required in order to be holy and blameless, then we should live our lives and we should speak with our mouths in such a way that we recognize that the law of liberty is what judges us. And that could be loosely translated as the law of grace. That we are not to be judged according to the law of our actions. We are to be judged according to Jesus Christ's grace in our lives. The law of liberty in that while we didn't deserve it, Jesus gave it to us anyway. And so that should change the way you act. It should change the way you speak. It should change the way you talk. Suddenly you can't look upon those two who came in and you wanted to show favoritism to the rich and look down upon the poor. Now you can't do that because when you look at them you realize that they're really both the same. They're really both the same. And you are the same with them. The only difference in people is not social standing or financial standing. It is saved or not. And that's all we can be concerned about. Do they know Jesus? If they don't, can I tell them about Jesus? I don't care what they look like. I don't care what they smell like. I don't care what they act like. I don't care what color they are. Do you realize if we could only as a church, I'm not even talking about the rest of the world. Let's not worry about the rest of the world yet. If the church of Jesus Christ, the bride of Christ here in America could only grasp this one, one topic, one topic of partiality, if the church... Those who call themselves Christians, if we could only grab that there should be no partiality and God is no respecter of persons, do you realize that we would not have to worry about whose lives matter anymore? It would not matter if we were black, white, yellow, Mexican, Hispanic, Chinese, Vietnamese, Korean. It does not matter to the child of God. The child of God looks upon a person and says, do you know Jesus And I don't care what color you are. The streets would be safer for young African-American men, for Mexican men, and for our police officers because the people of God would just say, I am not going to show partiality to anyone. And if the church of Jesus Christ could just get that, I promise the rest of the world would change behind us. If just the people that say they love God could grasp that, all the rest of these things would die and go away. But instead, the people of love God preach a message, and they walk out the door, and they don't change anything about how they look at others. The people that call themselves the church listen to this and say, you're right, Brother Jason, and you shake my hand on the way out the door, and you get out the door, and you don't care about what was preached inside i'm not just talking about you i'm talking about churches across america because the same message is preached across america i know it is i've talked to other pastors who are beating the same drum but nothing's changing because we hear about our sin and we walk out the door and we love our sin more than we love our god sounds harsh doesn't it but it is true it is absolutely true It's not easy to preach a message about sin. I promise. I wrestled with going two more verses so I could end on something besides sin. That's not what God had in store for us. I said, God, this is the Sunday evening crowd. These are the people that come back to church, God. They don't need to hear me talking about sin and beating the sin drum. Who else needs to hear it if not? the Sunday evening crowd that can go out and change something in the way that we act because if we recognize that we are merely sinners saved by the grace of God Brother Danny is saying that song I'm just a sinner saved by grace but if we could ever get that right here on the front of our brain instead of back there we couldn't look upon somebody with partiality because we'd realize they're in the same boat we're in. We're all in the same hell-bound state apart from the grace of God. And it changes the way you speak when you realize that the grace of God is what has changed your life. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. But mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What does that mean? That means that we should be marked by the grace we have received. There should be no mistaking the child of God when someone looks at how they treat others because they should be able to look at how we treat others and say, that's one of God's children. I see that he is marked by grace. So think about this. How do you treat others? How do you treat others? And if someone were looking at the way that you treat others, would they say, that one belongs to God? And if they wouldn't, why? Let's pray. Father God, we come to you tonight. God, we recognize that the inspired words of your Holy Spirit to James... God, they're difficult for the believer because they ask us to check where the rubber meets the road and ask, how am I living my life? God, we've been asked through the book of James to look at the sin in our life and say, how do I view my sin? Not my brothers, not my sisters, but me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer." God, how have I looked at my sin? So God, in your house tonight, for every believer that's here, God, would you convict us of our sin, Lord God? Would you call us to recognize the pitfalls in our lives, Lord God, and realize that we stand in the need of grace, Lord Jesus. That we stand in the need of grace and that the only way we've been saved is by your grace. And God, would you call your church to recognize that we cannot look upon others with partiality, Lord. And we cannot look upon others with favoritism, God. And God, if there be someone here who says, I've never accepted Jesus. I've looked at the way that I treat others and I've recognized I'm not Christ-like in my attitude. God, would you convict them and give them the courage to lay it right here at your altar this very evening and say, I want to give my life to this Jesus that causes me to be no respecter of persons. God, we love you, we praise you, we thank you, and it's in your sweet, precious name we pray. Amen.